Hey, welcome back. This is episode 18 of Dear Baseball Gods, and we're here on location in Champaign, Illinois, because we have a great guest today, Dr. Alan Nathan, who is commonly known as the physics of baseball guy. His Twitter handle is at P-O-B guy, and Alan is one of the world's experts on the physics of baseball. So if you're familiar with the BB Core, the the prior BESR certification on aluminum bats, Alan was instrumental in the panel of researchers helping to develop those certifications. Um, he was huge in developing the uh, the flat seam baseball and well, maybe not developing the ball, but in illustrating what the changes would have been as the NCAA moved to uh, to adopt the flat seam baseball a couple years ago. So Alan's a, a, a pretty pretty heavy hitter in the in the industry as far as bat standards, ball standards, and just understanding the game. And we're excited to have him here on the show again today. So Alan, how you doing? Doing fine, but just one quick correction. You're actually slightly over the line. You are in Urbana, Illinois. I keep forgetting that. Yeah, this is our second visit here, but I keep screwing that up. So, Alan and I watched uh, his beloved Red Sox play this past weekend in, Bo- in, uh, in Boston at Sabre Seminar. Interesting being in Fenway for the first time. That was, and to be honest with you, it's probably my favorite ballpark now because just uh, how would you describe the, vi- the vibe there in and around Fenway? Oh, it, it's, a, it's definitely a party atmosphere. Uh, you know, hanging out in the streets uh, before the ball game. There's a lot going on. Uh, they, the Red Sox did a really interesting thing some some years ago in, in that the right outside the main entrance, sort of the home plate entrance of the ballpark, they uh, cordoned that off so that you actually have to go into the turnstiles to get into it uh, for, I think, a couple of hours before game time. But what that means is you could go into the ballpark and then go back out again. It's all officially part of the ballpark. So it creates a real party atmosphere. And I think, uh, you know, having a ballpark smack dab in the middle of the city like that, it really brings the people in. And, uh, you know, it's a, I think people generally have a good time, of course, especially if the Red Sox are winning. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up a – I didn't really grow up a Orioles fan. I grew up a Braves fan, but I'm from Baltimore – and Camden Yards is a beloved ballpark, kind of in the same way, but just the feel was completely different. I mean, when I was with you in Fenway, it just felt like this was everyone's place. Just, like, much different. Like, I don't know, it's almost like Major League ballparks are this inaccessible, like, going to the movie theaters kind of thing, but Fenway was like having your friends over at your house to watch. Well, it's, 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 it's more than that, even. It, 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 it's, the whole city gets involved, whether they're actually at the ballpark or not. So uh, a bunch of years ago, I, I had a sabbatical at the University of Washington. So I w- lived in Seattle. And uh, I would try from time to time to engage people, just people that I saw in discussion, you know, how, how those Mariners doing. You get a puzzled look on your face. I mean, it simply was not an important part of city life. In Boston, it is. Whether they're really big baseball fans or just casual ones, everyone knows what's going on with the Red Sox. So it, the, the spirit really does infect the whole city. Yeah, and that's uh, you, you could just tell it. You know, as we kind of walked around, I got the tour. We uh, got there, what, about an hour before the game, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And it wasn't easy walking around the ballpark, obviously, because of, the I guess, the old architecture. But, you know, got a Fenway Frank, got a, got a beer, and uh, – it's just the, the place is just beautiful inside and out. I just yeah. I don't know. Well, the 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 field itself is gorgeous. I mean, uh, the, the field is immaculately kept, as are most major league fields. And this, you know, when you first walk out of the, come through the concourse uh, uh, into the stands, you see that 
big green monster in front of you. I mean, it, it really is spectacular. However, I would have to admit that when you go behind the scenes, things don't look all that good. And some of the, the, the modern ballparks really are, are much more pleasant uh, when you're when you're behind the scenes, but in the field, uh, you know, on the field, in the stands, it's it's nothing like it. Well, and I, I was remarking that you wouldn't know the age of it. I don't think from the concourse. I, I obviously like the architecture is different, but you know, at Wrigley or some of these older places, there's like a lot of built-up paints. Like when you get between like junctions of concrete and and girders, and you see like some rust, and there's just there's things that show age. But for me, as I like walked around and was taking Fenway in as we kind of made our route from hot dog stand all the way back around to our seats in the bleachers, just like all the concrete was really clean. The paint was like one coat seemed really fresh and obviously like they rejuvenate these ballparks. But to me, it just didn't show its age. I I don't know that if you had no idea what Fenway was that you would have guessed that it was, it's the oldest ballpark in America, right? Is it Fenway Uh, first, then Wrigley, then Bossy Field? I, I, I actually forget. I, Fenway opened in 1912, right after the Titanic went down. And I, I don't remember if Wrigley's a little bit older or not quite. I just don't remember. I know Dodger Stadium is the third oldest. And that, you know, given that that was built in my lifetime, that kind of makes me feel a little old myself. But uh, uh, I think the current ownership group uh, with the Red Sox really takes the fan experience very, very seriously. They have made many modifications, you know, the f- most uh, notable of which was the the uh, seats, the so-called monster seats on top of the left field wall. And, of course, that increases revenue by, by you know, adding to the seating capacity. But I think they really do pay attention to the fan experience. They want it to be a nice experience. And I think they go to great efforts to keep the place clean. So despite the fact that it's old, it doesn't at all surprise me that they regularly are sort of scrubbing it down and making it look fresh. Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's where a lot of just like minor league teams end up struggling is that they don't put enough. You know, they do like the hokey promotions and stuff like that, but just the little the, the little attention to detail and making everyone feel welcome and just like this is a good place to bring your family. I think that's really important, and it just can be often overlooked. And I mean, obviously, the big league level taking care of your players is is a given. Like those guys are so well taken care of and paid and all that. But um, a lot of times, like the fans tend to come second, but it doesn't seem like they do at Fenway. Uh, yeah, well, of course, they do. <laughs> the, the, the ticket prices are high. Uh, they, they sort of have leveled off in recent years. But as the Red Sox were, you know, having going through their stretch of really, really good years, um, ticket prices kept on going up. But, you know, I, I went, it, it certainly has not kept the crowds away. And through, uh, they're not quite like they were getting uh, earlier in the, in the millennium when they were, they have some record num- number of consecutive games that are all sold out. Mm-hmm. They're not quite getting to that level now, but but not doing badly. Yeah. So for our listeners, you and I were both at Sabre Seminar in, Bo- in Boston. That's why we were there. Um, you helped me get hooked up with that. This is my first trip there. But tell us a little bit about the history of, of Sabre Seminar because you've been there since the, the beginning, right? Yeah, it began in 2011. Uh, the, the principal organizers are – Dan Brooks, uh, well-known from brooksbaseball.net, and Chuck Korb, who's pretty well-known in Boston sports circles. Uh, he, uh, I first got to know him, not in person, but through 
this website called Sons of Sam Horn, which is sort of a Red Sox, primarily a Red Sox blogging site, uh, message board and that sort of thing. And uh, Chuck is um, uh, as generous, as uh, wonderful a guy as you ever want to meet. So they, both Dan and Chuck, Dan at the time was living, um, um, he actually, I think he was living in Providence at the time. He was, he was a postdoc uh, at uh, Brown University. And Chuck was doing whatever he was doing, and I'm never clear exactly what Chuck does. He was surfing. <laughs> yeah, probably surfing uh, uh, in the Boston area. And they got the idea of, of having this benefit, uh, Saber Seminar benefit, uh, for the, chari- the, it, the local charity in Boston known as the Jimmy Fund. Uh, Jimmy Fund is a uh, cancer research institute for children's cancer. In fact, it was back in the day when Ted Williams was with the Red Sox, he was a big, big supporter of the Jimmy Fund. That was his favorite charity, devoted lots of time and money to it. So anyway, this was originally put together uh, to uh, benefit uh, the Jimmy Fund. The idea was that it would, uh, we would, we w- it would run over a weekend. Uh, initially, the first year, it was actually held at Harvard, and then uh, in subsequent years, it's moved to Boston University, largely because one of the other people that are organized, that's an organizer, Dave Summers, is a faculty member there, and his mother is, is, uh, uh, has an administrative position in the physics department, and we actually have the Saver Seminar in the building that houses the physics department. So that helped ease things along. Uh, uh, but the idea was we would, uh, we would, we would uh, invite uh, researchers, sort of like myself. We would invite uh, uh, other people interested in various aspects, uh, analytics, sa- uh, sabermetrics, uh, and sort of one of the big draws is we've always managed to have uh, people associated with the Red Sox organization, such as scouts or people in charge of scouting, player development, things like that. From time to time, we've been able to get the, mani- the current manager of the team, uh, sometimes the general manager of the team. We always plan it uh, so that it occurs during a home weekend, so part of the fun is after the first day uh, on Saturday, uh, those who are interested, uh, we go out to the ballpark and watch the Red Sox play on Saturday night. And we usually try to have somebody associated with the visiting team that weekend come and either be part of the media panel, if it's a media person, or sometimes the general manager. And uh, it has grown uh, considerably. Uh, The charitable part of it has changed slightly uh, beginning last year. In addition to supporting the Jimmy Fund, it supports the Angioma Foundation. It's called the Angioma Alliance, uh, which is uh, uh, has to do with this thing that I don't quite understand, but it's uh, something that attacks the brain and uh, causes all sorts of problems. And this is something that's near and dear to Chuck Corpsart because he has it. And there's a... Uh, our former Red Sox prospect, Ryan Westmoreland, who had a very, very promising career in front of him, and basically he has this issue and pretty much had to retire from baseball. Anyway, so we, we are also raising money for Angioma Alliance. 
Uh, and uh, it has been tremendously well supported by people in the Boston area, by major league teams, more and more uh, major league teams send representatives to there. They sit in the back of the room. They're usually pretty quiet, but they want to hear what's going on, what people are talking about. So for young people, uh, it's a great chance to network, to let it be known to major league people that, hey, uh, you know, I'm an upcoming star here, and maybe you want to consider hiring me uh, as an intern next summer or things like that. So for me personally, it's my favorite weekend of the summer. I, I've always managed to give a talk at these. Uh, usually I find some fun topic to uh, talk about, and uh, it's, it really is a great event. So tell us about, I was just running through the list I have here on my phone, um, trying to remember some names of the presentations that I really liked. Um, tell us a little bit about your presentation. Well, my presentation, uh, I, I never usually know, quite frankly, until... And you're down the wire this year, uh, you told me. Yeah, well, until, until about a month away, what I'm going to talk about, because well, partly is because I've got many things I could talk about, because I'm working on many things. But I sort of decided this year I was going to talk about the home run surge in Major League Baseball. I actually talked about a similar topic at the Sabre Seminar last year. Last year, my focus was on whether the baseball was juiced, which is whether the so-called coefficient of restitution or the bounciness of the ball uh, was larger in 2016 and now in 2017 than it was in the early part of 2015. And so I tried to make it based on real data, so uh, I use StatCast data to try to analyze that. This year I had a different take on it. There have been some articles written that suggest that part of the reason for the increase in home runs is due to changes in the baseball that affect how it carries through the air. So when the ball travels through the air, uh, it, it experiences so-called air drag. They, that slows the ball down. And air drag is extremely important. I mean, it has a huge effect on the flight of the ball. So a ball that, uh, you know, travels 400 feet in the air would travel much, much further if there were no air. And, it, you know, you, for example, you see in Denver where the air is, there's less air there than there is at sea level, you know, it's a well-known effect. The ball simply travels further. You get more home runs. So I was trying to uh, see if I could see from actual StatCast data that looks at the trajectories of fly balls, whether you could see evidence that, the fly, that fly balls were carrying differently in 2016 and 2017 than they were in pre-All-Star Game 2015, which everyone sort of takes uh, as their baseline. The, the increase in home runs be, seems to have begun post-All-Star Game 2015, continue through 2016, and then even through 2017. So that was sort of the essence of, of what I talked about. There was, a, there was a, another topic that I sort of touched on, but since I never really completed the analysis, I, I, I only sort of introduced it. So I, I focused most of the talk on, on uh, the, the so-called carry issue. And what did we find? What did we find? Well... <laughs> So uh, I found an interesting thing. Uh, first of all, I had, a, I had a limit the analysis. I, I purposely limited to the, anal the analysis to fly balls hit at Tropicana Field in, in St. Petersburg, uh, home of the Tampa Bay Rays. 
because that's, that's a stadium that's covered 100% of the time. There are other stadiums that have retractable roofs. It's important if you're trying to see how the ball carries to keep all the atmospheric effects constant, you know, no wind, constant temperature, constant humidity. And so you really need an indoor stadium to do that. And I was too lazy to try to figure out whether the roof was open or closed in Houston and Milwaukee and all these other places. So I just concentrated on looking at uh, Tropicana Field. And uh, I got hold of actual fly ball trajectories, which are measured using the TrackMan radar, which is part of the StatCast system. And uh, using techniques that I talked about in a not too technical way, because after all, the audience is a baseball audience. Uh, but using techniques uh, associated with uh, uh, fly ball trajectories and things like that, things that I've been working on for quite a few years, I was able to show that actually there was uh, uh, an increase in carry, or if you like, a decrease in the air drag, beginning probably sometime during the 2015 season. Uh, and so if you compare the early part of 2015 with 2016, you see that the ball carried about five feet further for, for a given initial condition. So for a given uh, exit velocity, launch angle, spin, all those things, the ball travels about five feet further, which would amount to about 15% more home runs in 2016 versus the early part of 2015 based just on this aspect alone. So that was one uh, thing that I found. Second thing I found that there was no change between 2016 and 2017. Whereas the data show that there have been, there has been an increase in home runs. So yeah. uh, if there has been an increase in home runs, uh, it's not the uh, carry of the ball that's causing it. It must be something else. Mm. So those are the results. In I think they're interesting. Uh, there is much more one could do with this kind of analysis. In a way, I've just sort of hit the tip of the iceberg, and such stuff will, will continue. Yeah, and I, I don't think, obviously everyone's interested in home runs, but all this stuff is important because, you know, stats, it fluctuates from year to year. Like when we had such a surge in offensive performance back in the steroid era, everyone's like, well, maybe we should raise the mound back up, but you start tinkering with baseball. I think everyone's trying to, what do you feel like is the, the, the goal of all this sometimes? Is it just to make sure we're sort of playing on the same level field that we have been this whole time with baseball or to kind of eliminate dead ball versus very live ball eras? Is it kind of just keep it neutral? What do you think? Well, m my own goal uh, is perhaps different than other people's goals. My, uh, my own goal is simply to understand what's going on. Why is there, why was there an increase? And I, I must confess, I still don't have a complete answer yet. I think major league baseball, people really whether you're closely associated with the game or just, you know, an everyday fan, I think that they like to know that records that are set today can be directly compared or performance that's measured today can be directly compared with performance that's historically measured. You know, how, how important was uh, uh, initially Babe Ruth's 60 home runs and then Maris and then uh, McGuire and Bonds, uh, you'd like to think at least baseball people would, and, and I count myself among them, by the way, uh, w would like to be able to uh, keep keep the, the playing field level. 
to know that uh, when a batter performs in a certain manner today, you could make at least some attempt to try to compare that performance with, with historical records. Yeah, and I think that's important. I remember some of my friends who made it as high as AAA because if you if you watch AAA data, especially the International League, which is um, mostly I'm sorry the the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, which is mostly West Coast. I just remember when Noah Syndergaard got called up years ago. I was looking at his numbers. I'm like, he is a five ERA, and they're pulling him up. Like, how does that make sense? But when you talk to some guys who played in that league, they're like, yeah, a 4.5 is good if you're in the in the Pacific Coast League because the ball just flies there that you're playing in Albuquerque and Reno and Vegas and all these places where there's just thin air and just small ballparks and lots of wind. Um, so to compare like a place like that to other leagues and like you, you just wouldn't get it as a common fan. You wouldn't understand that. Cause I'm like, well, what do you mean you had a 4.5 ERA? Like that's not good. That gets you released in some places or demoted. And they're like, no, four, four point five is really good there because so many like routine deep fly balls become home runs and doubles and all that other stuff. So it's hard to compare. Yeah, uh, sort of a related thing is I, I've actually had inquiries from, from time to time from, from major league teams asking about the baseball used in various Asian leagues, such as in Japan or Korea or Taiwan. And whether, in, in order to compare performance there on people that they're scouting with uh, you know, performance in comparable leagues in the U.S. And there are differences in the baseball, and, that ba- and there are differences that, that could matter. I don't remember now what those differences are, but I, I, I do know that there are differences. And you sort of have to try to take that into account when you're scouting people. Yeah, I have two friends who are playing in Taiwan right now, this guy uh, Bruce Kern and Darren Downs, and they've, they both told me that the, the Taiwanese baseball is a little bit smaller. And I think the – the Asian baseball in general is just like a tiny bit smaller, whether it's Japan or Taiwan or Korea. Um, and I had a, one of my teammates on the road a couple years ago, Bill Murphy. He played for the Blue Jays in the big leagues, and he played two good seasons, maybe a third in Japan. And he said, yeah, like the, uh, the, the Japanese baseball is a tiny bit smaller, and it's got a very tacky feel of the leather. Like they don't rub them up like they do in America. That They come right out of the wrapper, go right into the game, but the leather is treated in some way where it has just like a little bit of a tacky feel. And so it doesn't need any of that stuff. But whereas American baseballs are really, really slick coming out of the wrapper. And, uh, and they're also just really, really bright. So, you know, the, the rubbing, the Lena Blackburn rubbing mud is just kind of a takes some of the shine off it, hopefully, like, restores some of the, the pitcher's confidence, I guess. And uh, I don't know. But it's also a weird tradition, the rubbing mud stuff, right? It is a weird tradition. And it, and it's, and it seems to be the case that this mud all comes – was it the Delaware River? I don't remember. I think so, yeah. yeah. The special – place that only that place has the right kind of mud anyway I don't know how much of that really matters but you know there is something though that you probably understand sir you I'm sure you understand much better than I do from time to time in, in the course of a ball game you see a pitcher throw the ball back to the umpire and say give me a new ball so he something doesn't feel right to the pitcher with that ball is it the seams or does it feel too hard too soft not round enough. I, I don't know what it is, but pitchers really do claim to be able to tell the difference between uh, one ball and another ball. It, and I, I, could, I believe them when they say it. Well, I know, you know, when I was in college, I played in the summer league. It was the Cowrupkin Collegiate Summer Baseball League or whatever. And in the second year that I was there, they were sponsored by DBAT, which DBAT's a nice big company. They, they make bats. They have uh, 
really well-maintained uh, like indoor baseball academies now. Um, so, but I guess at this point, this was like 2000, maybe like a, uh, 2007, 2008, DBAT had their, like their first foray into baseballs. So they were sponsoring our league. So we got DBAT bats. And for the second year I was there, we also got DBAT balls and they felt, they felt fine out of the wrapper. Like they had like pretty much the same shape as any other college ball and like soft leather. Um, but if they got hit, even like a routine ground ball, you get it back and it's like an, it's like an egg. So they were kind of soft, and they deformed really, really fast. And, of course, this was college summer ball, so it's not like they're going to just throw out every other ball. Like, you know, a minor league game, you go through 100 baseballs. But in this one, you're, you have, like, maybe two dozen for your game. And suddenly, like, sixth inning on, every ball you're throwing is an egg. And you just see it, like, almost fluttering to the plate that it gets just so lopsided. And you just start tossing them back. They give you another lopsided one, you toss it back. And you're like, I just want a ball that feels <laughs> feels round in my hand. But, of course, minor league balls aren't that same way, but – they 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 will get a little bit lopsided when they're hit hard. So if I give up a, a missile line drive when it comes back to me, I can feel that it's a little bit out of round. Yeah. But obviously, their minor league balls are way harder than college balls, and then major league balls are, I think, a good amount harder than than minor league balls. But I mean, that's part of it is they get deformed. Other than that, you know, if they hit the ground, you know, you throw so hard and, and guys hit the ball so hard that at higher levels that. It could easily have a scuff or a big dirt mark right where you're going to hold it, depending on the orientation of the pitch you're going to throw. So that's another thing. You just don't want dirt right there. But if it does have a scuff and it's not going to affect you, most pitchers will keep it because that they know that scuff's going to give them a little more movement or whatever. So you try to find the balance of the two. Um, and sometimes, I don't know, they just uh, they just feel a little awkward and there's maybe no rhyme or reason. But there also is variance. I think, and again, I didn't pitch in the major leagues, but I know in the minor league, the minor league baseballs, depending on the one you get, it could have more seam or less seam than the next one. So some of them are very flat. Some of them are have just almost like a college seam. Um, I think they've increased the, the uh, not necessarily the quality, but like the, uh, what is it when they, they, check the, they check the factory lines? Oh, quality control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quality control is, I think, increased because my last two seasons in the Atlantic League where we used these minor league balls with uh, red and blue seams instead of just red, the quality went up tremendously and like every ball was almost ex- almost identical whereas in previous years we used the standard minor league baseball with red seams and they were just very different from ball to ball and that's just a little bit frustrating I mean depending on how you hold your curveball your slider if you have a little more seam or less seam it's just just a little bit different and just small differences at that level you know they, they matter um, but I don't know I mean obviously like college balls and you know I've talked about this before college balls used to be they had such big seams that they almost feel square in your hands now they've gone to the you know the flat seam ball so it's pretty much the same but i uh, i never really understood why i mean youth ball still you know if a, a pro guy picks up a youth baseball and throws bp all day he'll have like bleeding fingertips because he's just not used to that much um that much of a an abrasion off the uh, off the seams but and so in you in your analysis you've shown that what's the difference between a high and a low seam in a, in a, a batted ball so in this little experiment that we did a few years ago, and other people have done a similar experiment, um, ball that used to be used in NCAA play, the high seam ball, uh, s- simply did not carry anywhere nearly as well as a major league ball or even the minor league ball. I mean, the, on a typical long fly ball, you know, 380 feet or something like that, it might travel 20 feet less, something like that. In fact, it was... It was exactly this reason that the NCAA decided to switch to the flatter seam ball. So 
for the NCAA back beginning with the 2011 season when they switched to the BB core bats, they discovered, not to anybody's surprise, that the home run production dropped. In fact, that was that was one of the goals. They wanted the offensive production uh, to stop. They didn't want baseball scores looking like football scores anymore. Uh, but it, apparently it worked too well, and they wanted to get some of the offense back again, so they decided that rather than change the bat, they would simply change the ball. And indeed, when they switched from the flat seam ball to something that's pr probably pretty close to the minor league ball, uh, for, uh, sorry, when they switched from the raised seam ball to the minor league ball, which has much flatter seams, uh, home runs went back up again. Nowhere near where they were with the, uh, with the yeah. old bats. But, and everyone seems to be more or less happy that they've really found the right balance now. But we, you were talking about scouting and, and sort of, in a way, normalizing to the equipment. This, this must be, you know, it's, it's for Major League Scouts looking at college and high school players, it, it's sort of like a moving target because, you know, first they change the bats. Okay, now you have to wonder again, all right, the, this guy who used to be a home run hitter is no longer a home run hitter. And then they change the balls. Okay, now he's a home run hitter again. So, you know, the, it, it, the, it's something that the pro scouts have to continually be aware of because the equipment has been changing much, much more uh, at that level than certainly than at the major league level. Yeah, and it's, it's weird. I remember when I was, I guess, like maybe a sophomore or junior in college, we played against William and Mary. They were, uh, you know, like a four-hour drive from my school at, in, at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So we played William and Mary most years, and they had a couple pretty high draft picks while I was there. And one of them, I just remember my teammates talking about him. They were like, yeah, you know, he went in the sixth round or something, but he's not going to make it in pro ball. He's got a metal bat swing. You know, I was 21. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know what that means. Like, how do you know that he's not going to succeed in pro ball? And, of course, they could have said that to about 10 guys, and they would have, you know, who knows if anyone would have been, they would have been correct at all. But for this guy, that turned out they, they were correct. And he just hit an abysmal, like, 180 his first couple years in pro ball, and then he got bounced out. But basically what was described to me is that the metal bat swing is just because metal bats have more of their weight distributed closer to the hands, that a lot of guys can get away with sort of different swing mechanics and still be successful. But when they go to the wood bat, it just really exploits all these, you know, maybe they're not as strong, maybe they can't stay inside the ball as well, maybe their bat speed just isn't, you know, it's, it's just not enough to catch up to pro pitching on the inside part of the plate. And so they have these really heavy and loaded wood bats, and that's that for them, you know. So yeah. it's got to be hard scouting that. Yeah, I think it is. And that's why it's important that they have these summer wood bat leagues like the Cape yeah. Cod League, and there are many others, but the Cape Cod is certainly one of the most famous, where they have an opportunity to use and then be scouted, use wood bats and, and be scouted by major league teams. Yeah, which I was actually, so I was up with uh, the two other baseball guys in, in attendance for the uh, Rapsido uh, demo at Sabre Seminar. We went and got lobster rolls on, on Monday morning and they were talking about the Cape because both of them, Dave and, and Kevin, played in the Cape Cod League in college. I wasn't good enough to do that. But um, they were saying that, like, ha-ha, the scouts just chose the Cape as, like, the best league because it allowed them to spend, like, two weeks up in, like, the beautiful Cape Cod area, which I laughed at until this past week I was at my own academy's team's tryouts, and we had a, uh, a, a scout from the Mariners there, and he's this, this great old guy, and he was telling us all sorts of stories. And uh, he was like, yeah. You know, the Central Central Illinois used to have one of the top collegiate baseball leagues in the country, 
until all the scouts decided that they'd rather spend their summer in the Cape Cod instead of Peoria, Illinois. And I just laughed at the connection between the two, that that wasn't maybe a myth. Well, uh, all I could say is you can't blame them. <laughs> yeah. If I could be in the Cape in the summer, I think I would too. So are you? So what kind of Boston food did you uh, indulge in this weekend? Are you chowder guy or... I, I am guy. I am a chowder guy. I'm also a lobster guy, but I actually didn't have any of that. I, I um, I'm trying to remember. I well, since I was at the ballpark two nights, I was uh, basically yeah, a bratwurst and hot dog guy. I mean, uh, that's <laughs> I, I must say I didn't eat too well when I was when I was there. But you know, when you're at the ballpark, you got to eat ballpark food. Yeah, do what you got to do. So, which uh, which of the other presentations did uh, struck you especially well from the, the seminar this past week? Well, I tell you, let me uh, let me see your list because I'm just lapsing out on what the uh, what the talks who, who was talking. I uh, yeah, so it was funny. I remember we were sitting at the Red Sox game with with a bunch of us, and I sat next to Kiri Oler, and she was uh, she gave one of the talks, and I said, "Hey, I'm Dan. Um, I didn't understand any of your talk, but it's nice nice to meet you." That was sort of <laughs> my yeah. my intro to a bunch of people, um, kind of as one of the layman folks in the crowd, but. A lot of really good information. I appreciate the ones that I could understand because um, yeah. I don't have a physics or statistics background. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you. So Glenn Fleisick, he is the uh, uh, the guy who is the director of the um, American Sports Medicine Institute in Birmingham, Alabama, which is partially funded through Dr. James Andrews, the famous surgeon. And Glenn... Glenn's a smart guy, and mm-hmm. he, he's, a, he's a good researcher, and he talked about the relationship between pitch velocity uh, and elbow stress. I learned a lot from that, from that study. You know, one of the, uh, the things that I really didn't know before, uh, one of the things that he showed is that uh, higher speed doesn't necessarily mean a more likelihood of, of an injury. Uh, for a particular individual, it does, but when comparing one individual to another, it doesn't. Uh, so th- the fact that pitcher A pitches faster than pitcher B doesn't mean that pitcher A is more likely to get an injury than pitcher B. But if pitcher A is continually increasing his speed, then uh, as he continues to increase his speed, it is more likely he's going to get injured. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting study yeah. and an interesting way to try to sort of synthesize the data. Uh, Ju- uh, Julia Przasek, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name right, wrong. Uh, she's, a, she's an intern, she's a student at Tufts University, uh, a chemical engineering student of all things, and uh, she's an intern with um, ML BAM over the summer, and she talked about stat casting sacrifice flies. So I thought that was an interesting talk. I, I really liked listening to Ben Charrington, the former GM of the Red Sox, now the uh, vice president for baseball operations or some title like that with the Blue Jays, uh, who talked about uh, what makes a good teammate. You know, w- one of the nice things about this, this Sabre seminar is not only do you get, you know, talks on Sabre metrics and things like that, things that interest a lot of people but you know there's a lot of people that maybe you're not so interested in you also get these more human type talks from people i thought this was a really really interesting topic by charrington uh tom tippett talked uh who who is a former um 
No, sure. Remember exactly what his title. But he used to work in the front office for the Red Sox as an analyst and as sort of a um, data management type person. Uh, he he's the guy who created this this uh, uh, game called um, uh, Diamond Mine Baseball. This happened before he joined the Red Sox. He gave a talk uh, d- discussing, among other things, th- how a team decides whether or not to sign a free agent, uh, especially one who is one of their players who's going to free agency. Again, you know, what you read in the newspapers and sort of see publicly doesn't come close to sort of showing the thought and the thought processes involved with, with, with those kinds of decisions. Um, Let's see what else did I did I see? Yeah, here? and touching on, uh, on on Tom's talk because I, I really liked his as well. It was just interesting talking about the. Um, it, it just wasn't all numbers with him. Like I really liked that he he talked about how there was context, like with Dustin Pedroia especially. You know, he as he ran his numbers, he talked about Pedroia's contract. He said, you know, maybe Pedroia falls a little bit short. Maybe he's not worth quite this amount of money, like from his his performance standpoint. But then he's like, look, a he's beloved by the fans. B, he nurtures younger players, and C, he's really passionate about us helping or helping us as an organization get better, recruit other free agents, and I mean he's he, he wants sacrifice a little bit. Of, he took a pay cut of his own to help the Red Sox get better. Right. So it wasn't just X's and O's. There was a lot of other context that he talked about where you know this guy is more valuable than maybe just this number, and that he outperforms us because of who he is and, and his teammate. You know his role as a good teammate and all that stuff. Yeah, we've heard in the in the past as well as this year talks of a similar nature from front office people in Major League Baseball, where they are reminding us that it's not X, all not all X's and O's. That there are other aspects that do play a role uh, in, in decisions that teams make uh, about the uh, uh, about player personnel. Uh, my good buddy Dave Kagan, uh, who's a physicist from uh, uh, Cal State in Chico, uh, gave a, I, of course, I, I love this kind of talk. He talked about, uh, he showed some slow-mo video, really great slow-mo video. And, and, then and when you see things in slow-mo video, like seeing the bat vibrate and seeing the bat recoil on a bunt, uh, and he, uh, you really can see with your own eyes some some very basic kinds of physics, and so he talked about that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how he showed bat break. So if, if the ball hits the end of the bat and it breaks, the break will be on the front of the bat. But if the bat hits on the closer to the trademark end, the break will go out the back end of the bat, which I'd never heard yeah. that before. It was pretty cool. And uh, Mike Reinhold gave a great talk on, on the effect of weighted baseballs. Uh, Fernando Perez. So Fernando... It was a fun one. Fer- Fernando is a fun one, and, and I have to say that I assume... The responsibility for getting him there. Uh, so okay. I have a, back I, for you. I, I have a I have a story to tell. Uh, so Fernando Perez, uh, his aunt is a faculty member here at the University of Illinois, and his aunt's husband is a former student of mine, a former graduate student of mine. He's actually okay. uh, he got his PhD here, uh, and he is is he lives in town, but he currently is. Uh, on the faculty at Eastern University, so he commutes there. And uh, so I, through that connection, I got to meet Fernando a few years ago. I first met him when he was in the Rays organization, and I was watching a, a game at 
uh, in Durham where the AIDS AAA facility is. And I, I got close to the dugout, shouted him out and say, and dropped the name of his aunt. And he came over, we chatted for a little bit. And then he was in town here, uh, I think it was in 2011 on Martin Luther King weekend. There was a symposium here on Latinos in baseball, Minnie Minoso was there. And so he was on a panel with Minnie Minoso and uh, he hung around for another day or so and we went out to lunch and had a good chance to talk. And then every now and then he would send me emails asking me questions about things. And so I got the idea, he, he's a very smart guy. He's a very intelligent, he went to Columbia University. He's sort of, uh, he, he's a thinking person. He was different than other baseball players for sure. Yeah, and he... Because uh, he played in the major leagues. He, with, pl- he played with the Rays. With he, the Rays. He, he, uh, he was there during, he was with them. I don't know if he actually played, but during the year that they were in the World Series, whenever that was, 2008, I think it was. Um, so he sort of got up at the right time. But uh, in the end, he was sort of a washout in Major League Baseball. He got his cup of coffee, maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah, those are his own words, too. Yeah, I know. That's a, but he really gave a great talk. He, he, and and he, his talk, was, and, which was similar to your talk, Dan, was questioning – the way that minor leaguers are developed. Uh, And, you know, I think the essence of the talk was, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you're not immediately identified as being a potential star, you're ignored, and you're given very little of anyone's time in, in minor league baseball. You're not really developed well at all, which was an interesting story to hear because it directly contrasted with what the Red Sox player development people were talking about of you know how they with the efforts they go to to uh, try to individualize the instruction for players uh, in their minor league system to, to help develop them yeah and one of the messages I, I liked from him was that you know he just he, like you said he challenged the way the teams are practicing and he talked about how he I don't know just in different circles they would bring like a like they bring like a soccer coach to watch a baseball practice or an Olympic lifting coach to watch a baseball practice. And they'd say, why on earth are they doing it this way? Like just taking other people from other, you know, areas of, you know, sports or, or technology or whatever and, and asking them to, to gauge the efficiency of baseball practice and like player development, all that stuff. And it produced some interesting responses, you know, and, um, you know, things like batting practice, I think more and more people are aware. I a coach that I played for in summer ball who was a mentor of mine, he, uh, you know, as we were talking about practice plans for my own academy teams, he was saying, look, do not waste your time with on-field BP. If you take on-field BP, it's two or three hours of wasted time because kids get 12 swings while everyone else stands out there and shags fly balls. But that's a constant in everyday pregame in, in, in minor league baseball and in major league baseball. You know, you show up at the ballpark at – at 2 o'clock, you do your thing, you do your stretching, you get your treatment, you get ready, you go out there at 3 or 3.30, you, you know, pitchers throw, position players throw, they get ready. And then you do BP for an hour and a half. Each team is 45 minutes. And for the pitchers, you're just out there standing and shagging and talking about, you know, what you did last night or what you had for breakfast that morning. And uh, you just wonder, like, what could we be doing that would be more productive with this? Now, at that point, understand that it's, it's not like you're going to spend – every morning of a 140-game uh, season, 160-game season, practicing. You know, it's not like you need more efficient stuff to do, at least as a pitcher, because you only have so many bullets in your arm. You have only so much energy energy to expend. 
But at the same time, if we just made things more efficient, you could show up to the ballpark at five, you know, and just get things done and be ready for the game and maybe save some of that fatigue because even just staying out there for BP starts to wear you out in August. You know, it's, it's really yeah. hot. So I sort of wonder, uh, obviously, Fernando has a sort of a contrarian view yeah. of how things are done. For sure. And I wonder how, whether major league teams are pay, would pay attention to what he's saying. And, you know, a lot of what, a lot of what we do is we do it that way because we've always done it that way. And yeah, for no is all fallacy. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, so uh, I, I sort of wonder how, uh, and I haven't talked with anyone about this yet, but I wonder how, w- whether he ended up opening the eyes of a lot of uh, major league people from what he was saying or whether they just ignore him. I don't know. I do know, you know, I, I, I remember a bunch of years back when uh, Mike Marshall, Dr. Mike Marshall was trying to peep, you know, tell people the right way to pitch to avoid injuries. Yeah. And major league people were not paying attention to him. Now, I don't know enough about biomechanics to know whether he's right or wrong or what, but I, I do know that he was sort of an outcast. Well, I do know that his, he's a very abrasive person in the way he dispels his message. If you read his writing, if you watch his videos or you listen to interviews with him, he's extremely combative. And you're not going to get anyone's message, you know, across if you're telling people that they're an idiot and that your way is the only way. And then how do you not see that? I mean, he attacked Dr. Fleissig and his people. He has sort of like a cult following. And if you do some research and some digging online, you'll find um, Dr. Marshall claiming that Fleissig, because Fleissig eventually sort of, he didn't really bow to it. He, he, he bent and he, he asked them to bring in some Mike Marshall throwers to his ASMI facility. They would do biomechanics research on them to prove or disprove that his, his new fangled mechanics were actually better. And they did. And you know what they found? Stresses weren't any different. In fact, they were the same despite these guys throwing slower. So these guys throwing 84 producing the same amount of elbow stress that guys throwing conventionally 90 you know, would, would produce. And so when they did that, you'd think, oh, that'll probably just you know, put it to bed. No. They're like, oh. Fleissig doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the anatomy of what's going on. He doesn't get it. And I, I just remember seeing, like, Fleissig, he was in this form, and he responded to it. And he's like, look, that's insulting to me that you don't think I understand anatomy. Like, I took anatomy class. Like, I'm a, I'm a biomechanics researcher. We did this by the book. You know, the results are the results. Um, and he is a, he's a really kind guy. And uh, he was, I think Mike Marvel was just a textbook example of, if you want to get your message across, you have to be kind to people, and you have to go about it a certain way to get them to be yeah, receptive. You, you have to, yeah, you have to know how to deliver the message for sure. Yeah, I mean, they were just online attacking, and there's still people. I mean, on some of my YouTube videos where I'm talking about how to rehab, you know, maybe elbow injuries or whatever, um, you'll have Mike Marshall cult followers just start slamming me with comments. You, you see it all over. You know, you guys are butchering people. You should be doing it this way. You shouldn't be doing that. It's like, first of all, I'm not butchering anybody. I'm trying to help kids. I'm trying to teach them the right way, and I'm trying to spread good information to help them, you know, recover from the injuries they already have. And if you think that running around YouTube calling people a butcher is going to get them to you to your side and to open up to your views, no. It's just going to be like, go away, you know, you pest. But, yeah, and, and going back to Julia's talk, it was, uh, it was interesting. So she was talking about transfer. So she was talking about the uh, trying to quantify 
the tag up situation from the outfield. So you have a runner who runs, you know, X miles per hour. He's on third. You hit a, a ball X feet from the home plate. You know, so there's a you have um, I don't know name who's a fast guy now. Two out of touch. Oh, you got Mookie Betts on third Mookie base. Betts, there you go. Hit a deep fly ball to center field. Um, Mike Trout camps underneath it. He's 263 feet away. Ken Stack has data quantify the probability of throwing this guy out the plate, and she was suggesting that maybe a that they pretty much could, and that b that maybe they put like a line out there where this is like the the yellow line where Mike Trout is probably going to throw the guy out, or maybe he's not going to throw the guy out. And then there's some leeway. Like, can he throw a guy out from? farther 20 feet behind this yellow line that says that he's probably not going to get the guy all that sort of stuff and they're quantifying you know the the release time and the transfer time so when you catch the ball you do your footwork your crow hop and then you get rid of it how long is that distance and it's a pretty interesting uh pretty interesting, interesting idea because when you can show stuff like that like the yellow line revolutionized football right i mean right made it so much easier just to visualize where they need to get to right and to say oh man that's that's going to score the runner uh-oh he's going he's going he's well within the yellow line like it's an interesting idea so uh, it's interesting you bring this up i i actually uh on sunday night after the safety seminar was over i was uh, out at dinner with uh a bunch of people including tom Tippett, the guy who used to work for the red sox and we we're actually talking about this very issue and he was discussing yeah, he's done this sort of research himself, and I think probably many major league teams are, are doing that sort of thing. But he was talking specifically about, okay, uh, uh, how does he, what does he talk with the coaches about? I mean, the, so the, let's suppose there is a yellow line so that you can't see out there, but you sort of, you sort of know where, where it is. And the thing that Tom, uh, he didn't want to fill everyone's head with a lot of numbers, uh, the on-field people, for sure. Brian Butterfield is the third-base coach of the Red Sox, and a very, very good one, but a, a very aggressive one, and I'll tell a story about that in a second. What Tom was emphasizing, there's context that you have to take into account. So if you're one run down, and it's the ninth inning, uh, and you, you know, you've got good hitters coming up, you might not want to take that chance. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's a tie ball game, well, you, in some sense, you don't have much to lose because you, you know you can, you can always go into extra innings. You might want to take that chance. You always have to take the context into account. So uh, the interesting uh, sidelight to this is the game last night, Red Sox against the Cardinals. I don't know if you saw it. Um, Red Sox were down 4-2 to two in, the, in the bottom of the ninth. They hit a home run to lead off, and that was 4-3. to three. And eventually they worked it to runners on first and third, with one out, with two outs, so they're still down one run. And Mookie Betts, it's a three-two count, so everyone's running, uh, or at least the runner on first is running. Uh, he hits the ball off the wall, so the runner on third easily scored, tying the game. And Brian Butterfield, the third base coach, uh, since the runner on first, uh, I guess it was uh, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., he, he gave him the run sign and. It's clear that a good throw definitely would have beat him. Uh, but the throw was muffed. The throw was a little high, and he managed to beat the, beat the tag. The ball actually got away because it was a high throw. And I was thinking, gee, you know, why did he send him? Because he was a dead duck out. But, you know, at that point, the game was tied. And this would have been the winning run. And if it would have been the tie run, I don't think they would have sent him. Uh, because you, you simply can't take a chance on making that third out. 
So that's a good example of how, it seems to me, how, of how context really does matter. Yeah, and it's, t- and it's tougher in situations like that than it is in other places in the game. Like, it's, it's easier when, you know, say you're down by four runs and you have a leadoff double. That could be a triple into right center. You definitely hold up at second base, and you learn that as a, as a runner at a certain point because getting to third doesn't matter because if you guys are going to push the runs across that you need, it's going to take a bunch more hits, and they're going to squeeze you into the plate anyway. You know what I mean? So um, there's a lot of a lot of growing pains like that for young kids where they, they always want the extra base. And one of the really interesting things I've, I've liked from Tom Tango's book, uh, The Book, is just talking about how trying to squeeze more value out of situations and squeeze more value out of um, your singles and, and your batting order and all this different stuff where he talks about that you know a good base runner goes first to third about 15% of the time more than an average base runner in the big league. So the average base runner will go first to third on a single about 35% of the time. And he explains that a, 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 a good base runner, which I guess that means partly made a little faster, good instincts, all that sort of stuff, will go to first to third about half the time. So if you're to order your lineup um, or you have a guy who hits a lot of singles, you want to put him in front of a guy who is a really good base runner or behind a guy who's a really good base runner. So now it's going to optimize all the singles that he hits we're going to go first to third more often because the good base runners are in front of that guy. Um, but you also have to have runners that know when getting to, th- to third is important and a third base coach that knows when getting to third is important. Like you want to get to third with one out because now routine ground ball up the middle, if the double plays not in order, scores you, sack fly scores you, all that sort of stuff. And that's one of the things we try to beat into the, the young kids in my academy is like, look, only try to get that to third base when there's one out because if you're on second with no outs, we can still manufacture you home, you know, single and a sack fly or two sack flies. But um, And getting to third with two outs has very little value. And the run expectancy charts, they show that, that same effect where getting to third with one out does increase run expectancy. But, you know, getting to, to third with two outs doesn't really because it still takes a hit for the most part. Um, and yeah. I think, yeah, having a third base coach that gets all that stuff. And I, th- I know, Tom, I think you talked a little bit of that while I was still present before you guys went out to dinner. But he was talking about yeah it's like they could have an idea that in this situation sending the guy is going to give you a 70 percent probability of him scoring or it just makes more sense even if it's a low probability because of the situation like you were talking about yeah. i don't know does he have a metric for that yet or is it still to, sort of like in development oh, i think it's in development but w- since you brought up tango's book the book uh for budding uh sabermetricians out there i i i highly recommend that book it, it it, it talks, you know, there's a lot of sabermetric kind of stuff in there. But, you know, more than anything else, it sort of teaches you the, how to go about thinking about a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a way of thinking about the problem that they really are teaching you in that book, uh, you, you know, in addition to a lot of other stuff. But just, the, you know, what, what things should you take into account? And uh, it's, it's uh, for, uh, for many people, uh, people who call themselves these days sabermetricians they sort of got to start reading that book mm-hmm. yeah and that's like i said i don't have a statistics background i don't have a you know i was a philosophy major in college so i just have a words <laughs> being bored reading tough reading background but uh you know so at, at the saber seminar there were a lot of presentations that just were inaccessible to me like i just didn't have enough um prerequisite knowledge of the subject to have to get anything out of it and that's okay um, but I did like in, in, in Tango's book, he like talks enough about this is what it means when I'm doing a regression. So we're going to add 400 at-bats to this guy's 
average to bring it up so it regresses, you know, and it takes away the effect of, uh, you know, just like random variance a little bit. Like, I, I get that stuff. And that's that to me is exciting where I can learn. So I'm never going to like, I'm not going to go take statistics classes to try to become full-fledged baseball baseball analyst. Like, that's not what I want to do. I like being somewhere in the middle. But I also like having, being able to access some of these things because I get to get a little bit of a segue and I feel like Tango's book is good for that. Keith Law's book was even good for that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, just helping me understand, like, this is what a regression means. And this is how we can isolate some effects. And here's how we can minimize some of these effects for randomness and all that other stuff. Since you brought it up, I, uh, pe- people being in the middle, like you say you'd like to be, uh, Brian Bannister, uh, who is um, – I, I don't even know exactly what his title is with the Red Sox. I, I think he's sort of in charge of pitcher development. And he, he's at the – he sort of falls in between. He's a former pitcher himself. His father was a pitcher, okay, Floyd Bannister. And he, he was a pitcher. He it's a pl- good old-school name, Floyd Bannister. Yeah, it is. should have a Tommy gun. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, so he, he's a, a smart guy, Brian Bannister. He was a, you know, modestly successful major league pitcher for the Kansas City Royals and probably for some other teams. And – uh, he was one of the very first major league pitchers who uh, was aware of his pitch tracking data, the so-called pitch FX data. He would look at it. He would use it to try to improve his pitching. And eventually he retired, and now he works with the Red Sox. And he, he serves as, a, an, I think, an important link between the analytics team, which you know, which is in the front office, and they're you know well versed on all the latest sabermetric uh, uh, ways of, of of evaluating pitching. So he's a link between that team, about which he knows a lot, uh, and the actual on-field people, the coaches and the pitchers. Uh, and uh, he is, uh, I think, more and more teams are probably going to be having people like that on their staff uh, to serve that very, very important link. Because I think players, maybe more now than even five years ago, uh, probably are starting to learn about these, uh, you know, the stat cast data and what was their exit velocity and how much spin was there on that pitch and things like that. But they're probably learning slowly. I think having people like Brian around to sort of – grease the skids a little bit uh, and teach them what's important and what's not important in, in all these numbers is, is going to be a very, very useful thing going forward. Yeah, and I remember my first sort of foray into the advanced statistics was when I played in the Atlantic League the last three years. They have, you know, Point Streak is the, uh, the statistics company that does our stats. And then, you know, there's all the, as I would check through my own and through the league's own stats, I'd uh, have all the regular ones, and there'd be another tab for sabermetric stats. So I'd click it, and there'd be like six or six or eight of them, I think. Um, and I didn't know what any of them meant, really. I knew what a couple of them meant, but so I just started like looking them up and trying to figure out like what do these mean. And one of the first ones that was really relevant to me was first pitch strike percentage. So they had strike percentage listed, first pitch strike percentage listed, and I've, you know, it's been harped on for forever by all my coaches in the past, and rightly so, that you need to get ahead in the count. And so I was always trying to look at my overall strike percentage, which I was a, a good strike thrower. I usually threw about 66 to 70% strikes, which is, I think, around average, a little bit above average, but whatever. Um, and I always compared that to my first pitch strike percentage. And I remember my 
last couple seasons, I would get off to a really good start, and I had like 80% first pitch strikes and like 72, 73% strikes in general. And I always wondered, is this going to – like can you have a higher percentage of first pitch strikes than your, than your overall strike total? And as I watched it throughout the season and then over a couple of seasons, it always just tended to normalize. So if you threw 68% strikes – you at the end of the season usually threw 68% first pitch strikes plus or minus a little bit. Now with a, you know pitch like me as a reliever, 50 innings is not a big sample size, and that's the other thing that Tango's book talks about a lot is you need a really big sample size to really infer um, something causal or co- even correlational. But um, I sort of you know and so looking at all these different pitchers, like all right, well, this guy throws 66% of the strikes, but why does he throw 52% first pitch strikes? Is he scared of hitters on the first time? Does he overthink it? Do you throw too many breaking balls in the first pitch? I was a big like first pitch fastball guy. Like I'm coming at you, so my first pitch strike percentage always like met or exceeded my regular because as I'd start to get deeper in the count, I'd start to throw my off speed stuff more, which I didn't have as good a command of. So you know, there's more more balls in there. But um, that was really interesting to me, just trying to figure out like, is that sustainable that you could throw more strikes in one specific count than all the others? And I think Tango's book pretty much definitively is like probably not like chances are definitely no yeah that's one of the, one of the important things that people who haven't thought about it before really don't don't really think about this so-called this thing about regression to the mean mm-hmm. thing about there's the signal and there's the noise and the noise if you if if you throw enough pitches the noise sort of averages out to zero and you're left with nothing but the signal and the question is how many pitches do you have to throw or how many balls do you have to hit or how many of something do you have to do in order that the noise dies away enough so that the signal stands out. And that's, uh, he, he may not use those words exactly, but Tango's book really talks all about that. And, yeah. and so if you're trying to use present performance to project future performance, you have to be very, very aware of that. Yeah, and he talks about that a bunch. And the other stat that I looked into was batting average for balls in play. I didn't know what that was until a couple years ago. And it helped me personally figure out where I was at as far as slumping or even what's the opposite of slumping? Streaking? Streaking, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it kind of helped me keep a level head. So my last year, I got beat up a lot. I kind of got singled to death. So I pitched 14 innings, um, kind of gritting through some shoulder pain, and I had I gave like 20 hits in my 14 innings. So I was getting hit a lot. But most of those 20 hits, I think like maybe like 17 of them were all singles. And as I watched, you know, I give up, like, hard ground ball, hard ground ball, like, one hop liner through the hole. And I'm like, man, like, I feel like none of these are ever catching a glove. And I see other guys give up equally hard hit ground balls that become double plays. And I'm like, okay, you know what, I I think the results are still okay. I probably just need to ride this out. And I look at my batting average for balls in play, and you see one guy's got a crazy low one. Like, he's pitching to, like, a 125 BABIP. And I'm pitching to, like, a 300. And I knew that if I was around 300, then what I was doing on the field was, like, mostly me, you know, like plus or minus. But if you're giving up, like, a 400, you know, um, balls in play average or something really low, you just need to be prepared and keep a level head. Like, I'm probably going to regress back down. So if I'm pitching to a 100, you know, lots of balls are just finding gloves. And you yeah. can't you can't control that. So the blooper is going to start to fall, and it's going to regress to the mean. And if I'm getting just my brains beat in, hitting you know 420 against me, and I'm not just terrible, then that's going to regress as well, and more balls are going to start to find yeah. the mitt. Yeah, that's one of the most important things to come out of uh, you know the sabermetrics, you know the early days of sabermetrics, was that basically you know 
once uh, once the ball leaves the bat, you don't have any control about what's going on yeah. anymore. And you could hit a screaming lie drive right at someone, and you know, it's an out. And uh, or you could hit a blooper and it falls in and it's a hit. You'd like to be able to continue hitting line drives, not not bloopers. So, it, you know, this batting average of ball in play, I mean, typically league average, it's something like 300. Mm-hmm. And it's always around 300. So if, if you're a hitter and you're, having, you're playing well, you're going through this streak where you, your batting average of balls in play is up around 380, you sort of know, you, you may not believe it yourself, but you sort of know, everyone knows, it's not sustainable. It's going to even out in the end. And if you're having a slump and you're way around you know, 240 or so with batting average ball for balls in play. Uh, Despite the fact that you seem to be hitting the ball well, you know, it's going to get better. And uh, so uh, that's another, that's a good example of how things like traditional batting average is not, you know, necessarily a good way to evaluate hitters. Yeah, and I I, I can't remember who said it, but that you couldn't, I think it was actually in Moneyball, which I've, almost finished up. I felt like a fraud that I hadn't read Money, Moneyball yet as I had flying into Boston. I tried to read the whole book on my flight, which I felt a little bit short, but um, them talk, I think it was in that book they mentioned that you can't visually tell the difference between a 275 and a 300 hitter. Only if you keep stats can you tell the difference between the two. Because yeah, it's so few hits. And in yeah, the you, movie Bull Durham, he talks about how over a 500 at bat season, the difference between batting 250 and 300 is only 25 hits. Yeah, so it's, crazy. it's, hard, it's yeah, is, hardly yeah, noticeable, exactly. yeah. So yeah, uh, so nowadays, nowadays, uh, I think people are using more. Uh, what I would say is are more objective ways to evaluate hitting, like looking at the exit velocity. So generally speaking, if you hit the ball hard, you're going to enhance your chances of getting on base, whether you actually get on base or not. Uh, so you look at if you've got exit velocities consistently, you know, up around 100 miles an hour eventually you're going to get on base a lot. Yeah. Whether or not you actually do, you eventually will. Uh, and if your exit velocity is low, uh, you know, in the 80s or something, uh, you're not going to get on base uh, uh, in the long run. And so m- more and more, I think, players are being evaluated that way, at least, at least uh, among the people who make decisions about player personnel. Yeah, and it's, it's especially hard because, you know, in my academy, so we have teams from 13U all the way up to 17U, and we've, like, I spent my whole day yesterday cutting cutting kids from our trial, which is hard, and we've been letting kids go from last year who didn't make the team for, for next year, and we're trying to use stats and just our own just, like, visual evaluations <coughs> to uh, to figure out, like, what can we expect from players and how well did they do this year and how well can they do the job, and we have such small sample sizes, so kids who get – who played most of the like most every game 80 at bats in the summer and then kids who are more you know sharing time 30 40 at bats and so you're looking at like all right this kid hit 300 but you know I watched him he doesn't hit the ball that hard a couple of these were bloopers so if we take away two of those bloopers he hits 240 because he only has 30 at bats you know or this kid hit 350 but there were like nine singles to the right side and they were just like kind of like rounders and here's another kid who hit only 250 but we know for a fact that he hit three missiles that went right at a guy this one weekend that we were there for um so it, it's just it becomes really hard there becomes a lot of extra context that you have to know to figure out how to grade these kids on such a small sample size because three you know 30 bats is like a slump yeah, in the big it, leagues you yeah, know it, it, it's not much and 
one of the things that Tango does in his book is he talks about how many at-bats do you need in order to properly evaluate you know, oh, your it's a lot. It's a lot. Right? Yeah. So, it, you know, you try to figure out, especially at the youth level, and that's what I'm especially interested in next year is trying to figure out if we can get access to some other stats where maybe I could use, like, WOBA to, you know, apply to our kids, um, which I don't think that's a stat that one of the popular apps called Game Changer uses, but I'm hoping that maybe they'll uh, – add some of that stuff but just trying to figure out like how do we at and we, we've been using one base percentage more than anything else really right now because that's telling us who's got good plate discipline right. um who's providing value to the team just because getting on first base and not making it out is so vitally important yeah well that's you know you're reading moneyball i mean that was that was their big yeah. thing in mm -hmm. moneyball was recognizing on base percentages as being an important metric yeah and nope. not not just batting average yeah, and we had a kid uh, this year, and it was it was kind of contentious with some parents. Um, but we have a, we have a catcher who's really small. He's if you looked at him, you'd say he's probably two years younger than the level he was playing at. He's playing at 16U, and he got 60 plate appearances for the year. He had seven hits, so he was drawing the ire from some parents who were like, "This kid shouldn't be playing on this team." But what they didn't realize was he had 21 walks, 21 walks, seven hits in 61 plate appearances. Almost it was like a 450 on base percentage. And at youth level, this kid, because he's a catcher, he gets a courtesy runner. So we put our fastest runner in to run for him every time. So now this is like having your leadoff hitter with a 450 on base percentage. It's a valuable player, not to mention he was an excellent receiver. So part of it's still educating our own flock and be like, look, this is how we're evaluating your, you know, our, your kids. Um, it's not just batting average. You know, your son might hit 320, but, A, if you know, two of those balls were caught, he only hits 280. So it's not really fair to evaluate him on that as, as much. But – we're trying to look how often does he get on base, what's plate discipline, plate discipline like, um, just lots of other things. Because he was an outlier where if you only look yeah. at his batting average, you're like, this kid stinks. But there was a lot more there yeah, well, besides that. that. that you know, what you're doing is sort of the modern way of evaluating players. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And uh, even at the end of the day, sometimes <coughs> you just have to kind of guess. And it's, it's, it's tough. You know, can yeah. you upgrade from a player or – you know, are we going to get what we think out of this other player? And sometimes you don't, especially when you're just watching at a tryout where you're throwing BP. You know, throwing BP doesn't tell you if a kid can hit or not. It tells you you can hit BP. It tells you about his swing mechanics, but it doesn't tell you if he can hit a slider and if he can, you know, have a good take on a pitch two, you know, three inches off the plate and then get the pitch that he wants and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty tough. Um, so what, what would your closing thoughts here about Sabre Seminar 2017? Well, as, as always, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I ended up talking, you know, you, you know, one of the one of the really fun things about it is that if you're reading articles and all these online things, the Hardball Times, Baseball Perspectives, Fangraphs, <coughs> or following people on Twitter, these are people largely that you've never met before, yeah. and all of a sudden there they are. You you attach a face. Uh, to to a person's writing, and it, you know it's kind of a fun experience to actually meet and and then talk with people uh, that you sort of know very very indirectly uh, already. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a fun thing. Uh, I highly recommend it to to anyone with the least bit of interest in in baseball. And I I think uh, each year it seems to get better than the previous year. Yeah, it was a great time. I was excited to, excited to be there, and I'm excited to hopefully go back next year. So, Well, Dr. Nathan, it's good to have you on the show here in Urbana, Illinois. <laughs> well done. 
<laughs> I'm sure we'll catch up again. Hopefully, uh, maybe we'll get another episode with you on it back in uh, maybe in December. Okay. Christmas episode. All right. Well, Always a good time. Thank you, Dan. All right. We'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.